Uh, a few years ago, my life was a bit of a conundrum. Uh, I was confused about some stuff. It was like a puzzle I was trying to put together, but I couldn't figure out how the pieces were supposed to come together. Uh, pick your phrase. It was a quagmire. I was befuddled. Uh, just really perplexed at what I was supposed to do in this moment in my life. So I sought out something that's a little bit like mentoring, but there's another word for it. I sought out a spiritual director. And depending on your experience of, of Christianity, you might have come from a tradition that uses that language, or you might not have. But spiritual direction, it's a little bit like mentoring, but it's a, it's a particular way of walking with somebody. And specifically when they're trying to figure out like, where God is in their life or what God's calling them to. And so I sought out a spiritual director, and I asked around for a little bit, and eventually got a referral uh, to a person. So the person I was referred to is an 80-year-old Jesuit theologian and priest. And the Jesuits are, are one of the streams of Christian faith that has practiced spiritual direction for quite a long time. So I felt like this is good. I'm in good hands, right? I mean, I, again, he's a theologian and a priest. He's part of the tradition that does spiritual direction. And the people that referred me to him said he's really good at this. You, you can trust him. He's the right person to go to for spiritual direction. And so I reach out. I get the appointment set. And I've never met the guy until I show up at his office that day. But I go to his office with this uh, sort of built-up expectation that I'm going to receive tidal waves of insight and wisdom from this person, right? I just imagine like his mouth opening and this stream of like straight from God to me, right? Like just tell me how to sort out my life and what I'm supposed to do from here. So, so I get to his office with all this expectation and I'm immediately struck at how warm and tender and gentle he seems and he embraces me with a hug and he invites me into his office and he's got this kind of twinkle in his eye and he has this sort of perpetual smirk on his face, which all the time that I met with him, this little smirk never left and it makes me think that he was in on some like cosmic joke that he still hasn't told me. But overall, like I really enjoyed his presence and so I sit down for this first meeting and where I expect all of this insight I don't necessarily get that. In fact, for that entire meeting, he only does one thing. It's not just that meeting. Every time I go see this guy, he only does one thing for the entirety of our meeting together. Now, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't recite scripture to me. He doesn't like hear my questions and then open up the Bible and point me to the right answers and the right verses. He doesn't do that. He doesn't tell me stories from his long life of following Jesus, even though he's lived a long life of following Jesus and surely has lots of stories that he could share about maybe moments in his life when he was in a situation similar to mine and how did he navigate that and how could he share that with me? He didn't do that. He didn't give me seven steps to a better prayer life or six ways to know your calling. He didn't give me any of that. All he did, the first meeting and every time I went back to him, one thing, he asked me questions. Just question after question after question after question after question. Generous questions, questions that made me feel safe, but also provocative questions, questions that, that probed into places in my life or my story or my experience that I was trying to avoid. He just asked question after question after question. At first, I thought he was trying to figure me out, right? I'm like this new kid in his office and before he tells me what to do with my life, maybe he's just trying to figure me out a little bit, right? But you know, by the time the first meeting ends and all he's done is ask me questions, and then the second meeting I show up and there are more, I start to discover that perhaps he's not asking questions so that he can figure me out. I think he's asking me questions so that I can figure me out, right? So that I can, like, so that I can hear the words that are coming out of my own mouth when I respond to all of these things. 
And I, I find out later, this is actually how spiritual direction is practiced. In fact, it's almost like a misnomer. When you hear spiritual director, you imagine a person who's going to direct your life. But it turns out a good spiritual director, all they do is they direct your attention back to your own life, to your inner world, to your experiences, to your fears, to your ambitions, to all the things that get stacked up on top of, of, your, of your own awareness or ability to hear where God might be leading you. And these questions are just meant to peel things back. That's what a spiritual director actually does. Now, this is not just uh, something the Jesuits do. Uh, another Christian tradition, the Quakers, anybody know the Quakers? Not just known for their oatmeal? Uh, the Quakers uh, have a tradition that goes back to the 1660s, and they call it a clearness committee. So the major difference between spiritual direction with the Jesuits or a clearness committee with uh, the Quakers is that with the Quakers, it's not one person interacting with you, but if you're a member of a Quaker community and you're trying to discern how you should move forward in life or, or what it means to follow God's lead in your life or to respond to what might be called out in you in this moment, you might convene a clearness committee and then a number of people from that community will sit with you and the vast majority of what they do is ask honest, open questions. By the way, apparently another part of the clearness committee experience is a lot of silence in community. Uh, which might be awkward, but turns out to be really beautiful and profound, uh, which is why sometimes we try to do that here. Um, but a clearness committee, they just ask questions, honest, open questions. And you think about the Jesuits and you think about the Quakers and these different ways that historical Christian communities have trusted the power of these questions. And then you think about the scriptures. If you think about the people in the Bible through whom the story of the scripture moves forward, and you think about the turning points in their stories, the ways that things open up in their lives, it's often the case that a turning point in, in the lives of the people of Scripture is also when a sacred question is asked. Sometimes it's a person in their life that asks the question. Sometimes it's the voice of God that comes and interrogates them with a simple question. And it's from the sacred question that things begin to flow forward and they move forward into whatever it is that God is calling them to. So, for a couple of weeks, we want to talk about sacred questions as a community. And we want to specifically turn our attention to some of the sacred questions that show up in the scripture. We want to ask where they come from, what might motivate these questions? Why are these questions so sacred? Why do they have such power? Why would God ask these questions of people? And how is it that people respond to these questions? What's at stake in their response? Uh, so that's the plan for the next two, three weeks. You guys up for it? Sound good? Come on, 11 a.m. Okay. Awesome. Cool. Uh, we're going to start in a text that we've looked at before as a community because we're, we're quite convinced that if you get the beginning of the story right, you might get more of the story right. So let's, uh, let's go back to Genesis, to the very beginning in the scriptures, where we specifically read about God creating Adam and Eve. You might remember the story. Uh, there's that moment in the scriptures where God sort of bends down into the dust and carves out the shape of Adam and then breathes uh, the, the breath, the spirit, the life into that dusty body, and Adam's made alive. And then uh, the first model's not quite right, so he works out the kinks and creates the upgrade, and the woman arrives. <laughs> so then we have Adam and Eve there in the garden, and uh, at that moment, it seems like things are kind of ideal. They're given access to all these resources in the garden, and they're able to live what seems like a really beautiful life. And as a sort of summary statement of that early experience for Adam and Eve, we read this in chapter 2. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. 
Now, I remember being a pubescent Jason, sitting in the pews, reading the Bible when the preaching got boring, and turning to that passage and having all sorts of scandalous thoughts about what that might mean. But in a hopefully slightly more mature state that I experience sometimes today, uh, I read this text and it strikes me that this is describing two people who are fully exposed and who aren't afraid. Two people who are fully exposed and who aren't afraid of it, they aren't running from it, they aren't covering anything up. As if to say, here's, here's me, right? Here's all of me. The good, the bad, the ugly, the parts that we proudly display and the parts that we usually cover up, here's me, here's all of me. Adam and Eve have all of themselves exposed and they're not afraid. Well, then there's that moment where the story turns. They had been told, right, that you could eat of anything in the garden except for this one tree. And then this serpent comes along and, and twists some of the words that they had heard, and then they eat the tree, or the fruit of the tree that they weren't supposed to eat from. And then things uh, turn sideways pretty quickly in the story after that, right? So let's, uh, let's pick up in chapter 3, where we read that right after they eat the fruit, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Let's camp out here for a moment. So Adam and Eve are there, fully exposed and not afraid. And then something happens in their story to make them afraid, to make them shamed, to make them want to cover up, to make them want to uh, restrict themselves, to hide behind something. I read that story and I just think about all of the moments in life that have taught us to hide that have taught us to hide some part of ourselves, some part of our stories, some part of our inner experience. Everyone I know has somehow along the way been taught to hide a little bit, one way or another, right? Like for some of us, it was like early in life where there was something unsafe about family. And you know, an innocent child, like you just sort of bring all of yourself to the party and then you're shamed for it or you're told to hide part of it. Or maybe you watch the adults in your life and they're really good at hiding parts of themselves and so it just becomes a learned behavior that you don't bring all of yourself to anything. You cover up, you hide, you obscure, you make sure that not all of yourself is out there because it's dangerous, it's risky, like it's not what we do, right? Some of it's, it's, it's family system. Um, some of us, it's religious system that teaches us to hide, but there's lots of us who have learned in lots of different ways that we need to cover some part of ourselves up. And Adam and Eve, they don't just cover themselves up with fig leaves, but there's this sort of metaphorical reading of them hiding among the trees of the garden. So you're Adam and Eve, and you're in, in a garden where everything around you is good. God has given all of this, and it's good. And yet you find a way to use the good things that have been given to obscure yourself, to hide yourself, right? And again, this is a bit of a metaphorical read, but it doesn't take long to think about the ways that we can use the good things to hide ourselves, right? So for example, I would say work is a good thing. Accomplishment is a good thing. Success, these are good things. You show up in the office, you do a good job, you climb the ladder, you gain some credibility. That can be really, really good, right? But how many of us don't know how to say who we are without our resume? Right, like you get to a party, you try to build community, and all you know how to talk about is here's what I look like when I'm really impressive there in the workplace. And if that got taken away from me, I wouldn't, wouldn't know how to bring myself to the party right now, right? Again, I think work is a good thing. I think accomplishment is a good thing. I think it's great to climb the ladder if you're doing it with integrity. Like, yeah, get out there, like, get some stuff done and be proud of that. I'm all for that. But what happens when it's not just an expression of who you are, but it hides who you are? Like, that's what I have to offer, and I'm afraid that if you strip away the resume, the accomplishment, the, the success, 
I don't really know if you're gonna like what you look at when you see me, so I'm gonna hide behind those things, right? What about family roles? I think family roles are a good thing. It's good to be a husband, a wife, a mother, a father. Those are good and beautiful things, right? But how many people get to a point later in life where that role becomes sort of the only way that they know how to talk about who they are? Like I've, I've sat with friends who have you know, stepped into the role of husband or wife or mother or father, and you give it a few years, and that role it's not just like a, a gift or a part of who they are or an expression of who they are. It becomes the thing they can hide behind. And it's like, what if, what if that role weren't like the headline on who you are today? Would you be able to tell us who you are? Or is it comforting to sort of hide inside that role? Because as long as you hide inside that role, you don't have to do the hard work of bringing all of you, all of your story, the good, the bad, the ugly, the shiny parts, the wounds, the warts. Like you don't have to bring all of it into the world when you have that role that you can just sort of use to cover yourself up. What about religion? Now, I'm a big fan of church. That should hopefully be obvious, <laughs> right? Or I, or I need to seriously contemplate a change of vocation. Um, I'm a big believer in Christian community, and yet, how many times is it like religious community? Is it church that becomes the way that we hide? That's like a powerful way to hide, right? Sometimes Sunday mornings become uh, a shared exercise in pretending that everything's fine and none of us bring all of ourselves here, right? Like church is for the shiny people who have shiny stories to tell, and the way that this week has just beat the crap out of you isn't something that you bring in here this week. Right? Like leave that behind because we don't want to disrupt the flow, right? Or the fact that you're not sure you believe everything that we talk about today, it's just easier to keep pretending that all of this adds up because who would want to disrupt the, uh, the agreement that we have in the room, right? So let's not, let, let's not bring that part of our story into the room where we're really wrestling with doubt about whether this all makes any sense. Uh, some of us have had weeks that we're just not proud of and we just keep making bad decisions and we can't figure out how to start making good decisions but you better believe like church is often the last place where we can talk about that, right? I think church is a good thing. I think spiritual community is a really, really, really good thing. And yet, even this can be like the trees that we hide behind. Like, please don't really look at me. Please don't see all of me, all of my story, all of my inner world, like, so we just keep hiding. And God is there in the garden and he sees that Adam and Eve are hiding and he wants to call them out of that. And so next slide. The Lord called to the man, where are you? Where are you? This is the sacred question that we want to hear today as a community. Simply that, where are you? Like, where are you in there, in that body of yours, in that life of yours, in that story of yours, in that life that you are living right now? Like, where are you in there? How are you hiding and how could you come, like, all of you, like, just bring all, how could, how could you say, here I am, right? Like, clearly, by the way, I don't think God is asking this question for his benefit. I don't think God is actually like, oh, no, I lost two of them. Where'd they go, right? Like, I don't think that makes sense, like the logic of the story here, but he knows that Adam and Eve are hiding, and it's like he needs them to hear their own answer. If we go a little further in the text, they would say to him, we, we heard you and we hid because we are naked and afraid. And it's almost like God needs them to hear their own answer. Like, where are you? Oh, we're hiding. Why? 
Well, we're naked and afraid. Let's talk about that. Who told you you were naked? Who told you to be ashamed of that part of yourself that like, I created? Who told you that, that that part of you, that a minute ago you were unafraid of and unashamed, who told you to cover that up and run away and hide? Let's talk about that for a moment. So God asks Adam and Eve, where are you? In that life of yours, in that body of yours, in the story that you were living, like, where are you? Not the you that you've built up, not the layers, the facade, the edifice. Where are you? I think this is a question that will uh, shake things up, disrupt some things, but on the other side of it, there's such beauty and hope. I want to tell you another story. This one is not biblical, uh, although it feels very biblical in all sorts of ways. A story of a man named Peter, and there's a movie that was made about him. And Peter is uh, a man who grew into adulthood and built layer after layer after layer to hide himself. And the layers that he built were largely professional. So he hides inside this very successful, accomplished identity. And yet because he's hiding inside this professional identity, he's unable to show up in some of the most important ways. Like, for example, like his, his son, his little boy, has a baseball game. And like, like boys need their dads to show up, right? And this dad is just literally unable to show up because he's just built himself inside this edifice of professional accomplishment. And the demands of the job mean that he can't show up and be who he needs to be where he needs to be for that boy, right? So this movie is created to tell the story of Peter. And the Peter I'm talking about is Peter Banning, uh, who is uh, Peter Pan, who became Robin Williams. Anybody know the movie I'm talking about? Hook, yeah. The movie I'm talking about is Hook. And it's such a stirring, beautiful film of a man who started hiding and then had to get called out to say, here I am again, right? So if you remember the movie Hook, it's sort of a fun sort of fictional sort of layer built on top of the original story where Peter becomes the successful businessman and forgets that he was Peter Pan. And then his kids are kidnapped and he gets drawn back to Neverland where the lost boys, the misfits, rally around him and say, we need you to be who you were, who you are. We need you to come out and be Peter again. And he's hiding and he's hiding and he's hiding. And then there's this moment in the story where the lost boys rally around him. And it's like they're saying, hey, where are you in there, Peter? And then, and then they find him in a, in a beautiful, strange sort of way. Uh, watch this. Peter, you've grown up. 
promise never to grow old. Peter. Anyway, need the Kleenex? <laughs> there you are. Well, there you are. I mean, like, I watched that clip, and I just can't help but think that um, the God who calls out to Adam and even says, where are you, is less like a scolding parent demanding that they account for their mistake, and a little more that, that tender little boy who's like <laughs> stretching your face saying, you're in there still, right? Like, there you are. And by the way, if God is that tender, gentle young boy, like reaching out to Peter saying, where are you in there? But if, if that's a little bit of what God is like, I wonder too then, what if church is like the lost boys? <laughs> like the misfits, right? <laughs> the ones who know how to not buy into the facade, the ones who look at each other and say, that, that's not you, but come, come all of you, your life, your story, your inner world, like bring all of that here. And when we see it starting to come out, we're the ones who rally around one another and cheer for it, rather than the ones who shame one another to go back into hiding. Like what if that's a little bit of church, right? The misfit lost boys who know how to call that out of one another. Now, in the case of Adam and Eve, in the case of Peter, and in the case of other characters in Scripture, showing up like all of you, Stopping hiding, like ending the hiding game, is not just like some sentimental personal journey for awakening. It's not just for your own like healing and happiness. It's not just for your own sort of private personal moment. It, it ends up being the case again and again that the characters that are hiding, the reason they have to show up, all of them, is there's actually work to do. Like they're here for a reason, but they, they can't fully live into that while they're hiding. So like Adam and Eve, I mean, the original calling on humanity in that text is that they are here to, to partner with God, to steward the world, to get their hands on the raw materials and make beautiful things. But you can't get out there and make beautiful things if you're hiding. And so I think God has not just a love for Adam and Eve and wants to restore them, but, but perhaps like a, a calling that needs to be renewed for them. But they've got to show up. Showing up is hard and scary when you're hiding. But if you stop hiding, it's a little easier to do it, Right. There's another character in Scripture. This is a prophet in the Hebrew Scriptures named Isaiah. And the prophet Isaiah is, is doing his ministry work at a time of great upheaval for the life of Israel. And there's a moment in the history where a king dies, which leads all sorts of uncertainty for the people. And a calling is about to go out saying, in this moment of uncertainty and upheaval, I need somebody to show up. And we're talking stories of hiding and shame and showing up, of God asking the question, who's out there? Where are you? Will, you? will you be all here, right? And Isaiah has one of those stories and a text that some of you have heard before. See if this sounds familiar. This is Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. And notice Isaiah's response here. Woe to me, I cried, I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Do you feel how much that feels like Adam and Eve in the garden? Like you sense the presence of God, the nearness of God, and, and something inside you feels great distance, great shame. You can, you can like sense in this the desire to hide, right? But watch what happens next. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. 
Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. This is the opposite of hiding, right? This is here I am. My story, uh, the shiny parts, the shameful parts, like here am I, but I'm ready to go. Like, let's go, send me, right? And it strikes me that in so many of our stories and so many of our religious communities and so many of our understandings of God, we think that our job is to clean up and then we can show up. But in these stories, it's the other way around, right? Adam and Eve, it's like they're, they're not finding a satisfying way of covering themselves up. The fig leaves just aren't doing it. So they got to hide behind trees until they can figure out how to clean all that up, and then they can show up. But God comes and says, where are you? I want you to show up right now. I don't care if you've cleaned it up. I don't care if you've covered it up. Just be all here. And Isaiah has this moment of fear, of shame, like something about me feels unworthy of this presence or this calling or this awareness of God and God seems to take it upon God's self to do the cleaning up. It seems it's Isaiah's job just to show up. I heard another teacher recently say this, and I think he's right. He said, uh, primitive religion will teach you that it's your job to clean up, but true, mature spirituality will teach you how to show up. The good, the bad, the ugly, and then from there we can do something, right? From showing up, the good, the bad, the ugly, the warts, the shiny parts, if we will show up, all of us, from there we can probably do something. And not only can we get healed, cleaned up, but we could actually get back to the work that we are here for. And everybody's got some work to do. You've got something that you're here for. You may not know it or believe it, but you're here for a reason. There's a reason God gave you a life. You can really believe that. You're here for a reason. And I think far too many of us have been hiding so much that it's really hard to say, here am I, like, all of me. But when we do, we might discover that God's able to do something with us. Now, uh, I think this can be a really powerful personal experience, right? So like, however it is that you, you know, move toward God, whether it's prayer or the scriptures or the ways that you live your life every day, or whether you understand that it's moving toward God or whether you understand that it's moving toward the true or the good or the beautiful or following Jesus, like whatever that thing in your chest is that calls you forward and higher, right? Like whatever that thing is, as you try to pay attention to that, I think this can be a really powerful question. And it might be that God is asking you, where are you? In there, where are you, right? But I also think this is an important question for a community. This isn't just for you and your moment with God and you and your moment with God and me and my moment with God, right? This is also a question for our collective life together. And I think it, it's, it's also the case that we can move toward one another and greet one another with this question. It won't always be explicit and overt. I'm not saying next Sunday when you find one another at church, we've all got to look each other in the eye and say, where are you? Because that might be a little intimate, right? I don't mean it has to always go quite like that, but I do mean we can be the people who create sacred space for one another to show up all the way. And when we sense that one of us is hiding a little bit, we can lovingly, gently, tenderly, thoughtfully coax one another out and, and find, find appropriate ways to just remind one another you don't have to hide here. This could be like baked into the operating system of South Bend City Church as a community that allows one another to show up, the good, the bad, the ugly, the warts, the shiny parts, all of it, right? It could be the way that we meet one another for coffee on a Sunday morning, the way that we meet one another over a beer on a Tuesday night, the way that we walk with each other. We also, though, we want it to be a part of intentional community that we shape as a church. And part of our chosen behavior 
as we come together uh, throughout our years together as a community. So I want to pivot for a moment uh, because where are you is not just a question for a sermon. It's one of the questions that shapes uh, one of our central sort of movements as a church. And I hope that you know that we don't just want to talk about these things. We want to practice these things. So uh, now I'm going to commence the pitch, okay? Uh, for another part of our life as a community that I want to unapologetically invite you into, and we call it tables. So you might have been around enough to know that we try to be pretty simple as a church. We just do three big things, really. Uh, we gather in gatherings. That's this. You're in one right now. Uh, and then streets is uh, the name for the ways that we meet our neighbors on common ground for common good. And then the third thing, the one other major thing that we do is tables. Now, tables are quite literally a shared meal. And it's a group of people who decide to share a meal together roughly twice a month for a season of time. Uh, tables that launch in the fall might go through a semester or through the school year. And the group sort of decides ahead of time how that's going to look. Uh, you're literally going to share a meal. And the one other thing that happens at tables is we offer each other a couple of sacred questions. We don't do Bible study at tables. We don't slip in curriculum at the tables. Uh, we, we ask one another a couple of sacred questions around a shared meal, believing that God can do a lot with some sacred questions in a shared meal. And where are you is one of the questions that we offer one another at the table. Now, just to be clear, we've just look, looked at some fairly vulnerable, intimate moments in the scripture, like nakedness and a burning coal touching the lips. Neither of those things happens at tables, <laughs> as far as I know. <laughs> just to be clear, right? Um, I don't mean to suggest that if you join a table, the first week you're there, you're going to be asked to get sort of metaphorically naked and share every part of your story and the things that you're most afraid of. We don't push like that. That's not the way that these sacred questions work. Rather, the, the, the joy of a, of a sacred question is that you get to decide how much you want to divulge with that, right? So often at a table, when we ask one another, where are you, the answers are sometimes like, Man, I'm in a really good season, and here is what's good about it. I just feel like I'm in a season that's, that's been um, full of life and good things, and I'm just kind of reveling in that. That could be a really great answer to the question, where are you right now, right? For others, um, the answer to where are you is like, man, I am in a dark season. This isn't going right, and this isn't going right. For some, the answer to where are you is, man, I feel really close to God right now. For others, the answer is, I feel a million miles away from whatever calls itself God. For some people, the answer to where are you is, I feel lost right now. Maybe you had a long season of life where you were oriented by the work that you did and then you retired. Maybe you're a little disoriented by that. Maybe you had uh, kids in the house and now you're an empty nester. And that has left you a little disoriented, you know, for like 18, 20, 22 years, you woke up every day and Taking care of that was a lot of how you found your way in the world, and now that's gone, and you don't know wh where you are or where you're going anymore. Sometimes um, the way that faith used to work for you and it doesn't anymore, the way that certain beliefs added up and they don't anymore has left you disoriented or lost a little bit. And so you get to a table, and the question is, where are you? And it's just feel a little lost right now. By the way, one of the powers of a sacred question is when it's done well, you don't have to wonder if anybody's going to try to fix you. Because we don't do that in the wake of a sacred question. We hold space for one another, we listen. And we trust that those questions and loving community and the presence of God are enough over time to lead us in the right direction, right? So we ask questions, we share a meal, and I wanna unapologetically invite you into tables for the fall. We're about to get them kicked off again. 
Uh, so a couple of details about how this goes. Uh, we're going to have a tables interest meeting next Sunday, August 25th. That's a week from today. Between the 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. gatherings in the 113 lobby. Now, you may not know this. You are currently in Studebaker Building 112. And from the outside, it looks like this whole Studebaker campus is one big building. Uh, but it's not really. And Building 113 is that shiny two-story building that you drove by on your way to park behind the gate. You know what I'm talking about? Like, there's Studebaker 112, and then there's the big parking lot, and then there's the jail going north to south. Make sense? So next Sunday, between the 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. gathering, we're going to have a, a sort of informal interest meeting between the gatherings in the Studebaker 113 lobby. You can come early to the 11, hit that, and then be here for church. You can also email tables at southlandcitychurch.com if you just want to ask questions about hosting or attending a table. Uh, also, students get to have their own version of the tables experience. This is for middle schoolers and high schoolers that are a part of our community here. Student tables are kicking off next Sunday, a week from today, uh, from 6 to 8 p.m. here in the same room that you're sitting in right now. Now, the underlying vision for student tables is the same as adult tables. It's a shared meal. It's shared conversation around these questions. But there's a couple of ways that we customize it for students. One is we're adding uh, some features to Building 112 to make this a more student-friendly environment with some, uh, like some games, some ways for this to just feel at home for our students. The other is uh, we work really hard to vet and train our student table leaders. So um, like student table leaders go through the background check the same way that our kids' ministry volunteers and staff go through. Uh, student, uh, or student table leaders uh, have been trained in some best practices and ways that we make sure that we've got a safe and honoring environment for the students. I just think if you're a parent, it's really important for you to know that. And we want to vouch for the kind of process that we have to make sure that's a good environment for middle schoolers and high schoolers here. Uh, again, you can email tables at southandcitychurch.com if you've got questions about student tables, or whether adult or student, you can talk to Matt Grable, our executive pastor. He'll be behind that curtain in the sort of lobby area after our gathering here. Uh, you can get some more information from him. You can sign up for more information on a little sheet. And uh, we'd love to invite you uh, into a table this fall. What's going to happen is we'll find table hosts over the next few weeks. And then right after Labor Day, you're going to start seeing open tables available on our website. And you can use that tool to join a table and find yourself uh, around a shared meal with some of these sacred questions. Yeah, Michelle? Oh, good question. Michelle asked, what time is that interest meeting between the 9 and the 11? Is Grable in the house? Caleb's going to go, okay, poor guy, he's back there in the, hey, Matt. <laughs> I'm sorry. Michelle's asking what time you think that between gathering meetings is going to happen next week. Yeah. 10.15. Thank, Thank you. Give it up for Matt Grable, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah thanks, Michelle. That's great. Uh, cool. All right, we would love to see you at a table. Now, I remember that, uh, that uh, tender-hearted old Jesuit that I used to meet with, the spiritual director, the 80-year-old theologian and priest? Um, I mentioned that there was a conundrum in my life that led me to seek out some kind of direction, right? Well, the conundrum was actually whether I should quit a really good job to do this. And uh, I, I felt this stirring, right? There's that thing in your chest sometimes that just says, you got to go. You got to try. You got to jump. You got to do it, right? We've all had some moments where you feel that thing stirring. And for me, this was one of those. And yet I, I, I felt all this resistance, all this fear, all this undifferentiated thing between me and doing it that I couldn't really net out. And so I sought out spiritual direction for it. And what happened 
through those sacred questions is it's just like little by little, he peeled off all the ways I was hiding. I was hiding behind a, a good job that looked pretty impressive. If I'm being really honest, I think I had fear that leaving that job would be the last I was ever heard from. Like my obituary would be like, at the age of 33, he left a really good job and was never heard from again, you know? <laughs> and a good spiritual director or a good spiritual companion, a good friend, a good community will just gently ask you questions about that. They'll be like, well, what exactly are you afraid of? I'm afraid it won't go well. Okay, well, why does that matter? What do you mean, why does it matter, right? <laughs> well, yeah, why, why does that matter? Well, I, I mean, I really like having some success. Cool, let's talk about that. Why does that matter? <laughs> and little by little, although I was a little bit infuriated at times, <laughs> these questions had a way of just peeling things back, right? And then the peeling things back, you get back to who you really are and what you're really here for. And finally, you find yourself able to say, here I am. I did not walk out of spiritual direction feeling tougher or stronger or better, but I felt true. And I got to a point where I think I was able to say, I know I don't have all the goods for this job. I know I don't have everything figured out. I'm not sure I have the energy for it. I'm not sure I have the character for it. There's like some warts in who I am, some things I'm still hiding. And yet the best I can do now is say like, here I am, let's go. And I keep finding that the stories that are good like the stories that are worth living often have a turning point where somebody just says, here I am, let's go. And so like my hope, my prayer for you is that you might hear God speaking to you, wooing you out of hiding, calling you to be all of who you are for us because we need you to be who you are for us. Let's take a minute and uh, let a song create a little space to reflect or pray or respond. Uh, before we go. Uh, so however any of us are hiding, may we be a place of finding. May you hear the sacred voice of God, the loving voice of God wooing you out of your hiding places. The good, the bad, the ugly, the shiny parts, the warts, the scars, may you hear God wooing you out of your hiding place so that we can together say, here we are, all of us, so that we can get to work. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you guys. See you next week.